Luke 15, 11 through 24. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate the word of the Lord. Well, last week we began a new series on this very famous parable of Jesus, most commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. It is a beautiful picture of God's love for us, but it's not just a picture of how God's love transforms us as individuals. It's a picture of how God's love transforms communities. Now, last week, we began by seeing what Jesus means when he says that we're lost. Uh, this is a parable, it's a story about a lost son. Uh, in fact, two lost sons, as we saw last week. Uh, being lost means that we're far away from God. Being lost is, is a relational rejection of God. As we sang just a little bit earlier this morning, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Being lost is relational rejection of God, being far away from God. Um, that means that being lost is, is not just doing bad things or wanting wrong things. Being lost is seeking really good things apart from God. Or we could put it like this. You have room in your life for lots of what we could call superficial loves. We were talking about this last week. Things like baseball or chocolate or Netflix. 
There's room in your heart for hundreds of superficial loves, but there's only room in your heart for a few of what we would call significant loves. Those are things like your spouse, your family, or your work. But there's only room in your heart for one ultimate love. And if you put anything in that place other than God, it will lead to huge distortions in the rest of your life because your loves are out of order. And disordered loves lead to distorted lives. That's what it means to be lost. Now, the big question is, how does that get fixed? How do our lives get put right? How do our communities get put right? Um, This parable is telling us that it begins with repentance. But as soon as we say that word, we've got a problem. Because in our culture, the word repentance comes along with a lot of baggage. Because to say that we need to repent is to say that we're sinners. And if you say that to people in our culture, it's just offensive. It's seen as being very negative about humanity. It's seen as being too demeaning. Uh, It's seen as an assault on our dignity as human beings. So when people hear language about sin and repentance, we reject that in our culture as as being primitive, oppressive, and dehumanizing doctrine that has no place in an enlightened, tolerant, and inclusive society. And yet, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth when he began his public ministry were, repent and believe the gospel. So what do we do with that? Are sin and repentance really as negative and oppressive and dehumanizing as we modern people believe? Or is is there something else? Does it mean something else, something deeper, something that if we understand it and do it, that it actually has the power to transform our lives? I want to suggest this morning that it's the latter. And I want to invite you to come with me as we learn more about what repentance really is. This is Jesus himself teaching us about repentance, okay? So at least if you reject it, at least you want to have a good understanding of what Jesus means when he talks about this. Let's see three things about repentance this morning. We're going to see what it's not, what it is, and what makes it truly possible, okay? What it's not, what it is, and what makes it truly possible. First, what it's not. Let's remember where we are in the story up to this point. Um, This son, he goes to his father and he asks for his inheritance while the father was still alive, which in that culture was a way of saying, Father, I wish you were dead. He takes the money, he goes off into a far country, and he wastes it all in extravagant living. And then he ends up working in a pigsty because a famine comes and everybody's starving. So here this is this son, he's shoveling pig slop, and he can't even get enough food to feed his own belly. At that point, there's a turning point. And we see it in verse 17. It says, he came to himself. Now, at the most obvious level, yes, that means that, as we say, he came to his senses. He woke up to the reality of his circumstances. He woke up to the reality of what he was doing to himself and how he was hurting himself. But it's more than that. It says he came to himself. In other words, he doesn't just wake up to the reality of his circumstances. He's waking up to the reality of who he is as a self, as a person, as a human being. Or we could say it like this. He's remembering his true identity. Because look at what he says right after that. It says, he came to himself and said, he begins this little internal dialogue with himself. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. So yet, he's thinking about his circumstances, but everything that he says about his circumstances 
is in the context of his relationship with his father. In fact, the words father or my father dominate the rest of the, of the paragraph. In fact, the rest of the story. So the son is saying, here's who I used to be, a son in my father's house. Here's who I am now, alone, starving in a pigsty. But here's who I ought to be, back in my father's house. Now, here's why this is so significant and what I want us to see about this this morning. The son's true identity is defined by his relationship to the father. So the fact that he's in a pigsty, yeah, that's bad. But, but what makes it a tragedy is that he's meant for the father's house. Repentance is not saying, I belong in this pigsty because I'm such an awful, wicked, horrible person. Repentance is saying, I'm in a pigsty, but the reason it's such a tragedy is because I belong in the father's house. Now, a lot of times in our culture, as I mentioned, we reject the language of sin and repentance because we see it as being an offense against the dignity of human beings. We hear it saying we belong in the pigsty because we're awful people. That's an example of what's frequently called worm theology. If you've ever heard of that, worm theology refers to the idea that, that, that we're nothing more, as human beings, we're nothing more than miserable worms completely devoid of any worth, value, or dignity, and that at our very core we're defined by worthlessness. Now, we rightly reject that. For instance, uh, that's exactly what the president just said about Africans and Haitians this week. With one awful, vulgar word, he essentially defined whole people groups at their very core as being worthless. He said they're pigsty people, they're worm people. We rightly reject that. Because we believe that every single human being is created with unique worth and value and dignity. But understand something. The only reason we believe that is because that comes to us from Christianity. Atheism says that human beings are cosmic accidents. Eastern religions and worldviews say that your sense, your experience of being a unique individual is actually an illusion and you need to be freed from it. Only Christianity gives you a worldview, a way of looking at the world in which human value, human worth, and dignity actually make sense. So, for instance, one of the most famous philosophers of the last century was a Frenchman named Jacques Derrida, very famous philosopher. He was not a Christian. But at one point he said this. He said, the cornerstone of international law is the sacredness of man as your neighbor made by God. In that sense, the concept of crime against humanity is a Christian concept, and there would be no such thing in the law today without the Christian heritage. This is a non-Christian saying this. Or for instance, we're celebrating the birthday this weekend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Do you know what drove his whole life and work? It was this idea, this concept of the image of God. So on July 4th, 1965, he once preached a sermon in which he said this, the whole concept of the image of God is the idea that all people have something within them that God injected. And this gives them a uniqueness. It gives them worth. It gives them dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every person from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every person is made in the image of God. Friends, repentance is not an offense or an assault against the dignity of human beings. Rightly understood, it's actually an affirmation of the image in which we were created 
which has now been marred and which cries out for restoration. So for instance, one of the things I love about St. Louis is the amazing architecture in the city. Um, It's glorious, but if you drive around the city, one of the things you'll see is all kinds of houses that have fallen into ruin, and that's tragic. But why is that tragic? It's because in the midst of the ruin, in the midst of the walls that have fallen down and the roofs that have caved in, you can see the glory that these houses were created in. And it's the knowledge of that glory that makes the ruin such a tragedy and, and actually creates the urgency of restoration. It's because of the glory. Repentance is not an offense against our dignity. It's an affirmation of the glory for which we were created, of the image in which we were created. It's a coming to yourself. It's a remembering of your true identity, coming back to the reality of who you are and what you're created for. It says you're not defined by the pigsty. You're defiled by the pigsty because you were defined by the Father. That's what repentance is not. It's the first thing we see. But that leads to our second point. What is it? (laughs) What actually is repentance? I want to point out three things. There's this little speech that that the son comes up with. It's it's at the heart of the parable. Um, We're going to go through that speech, and we're going to see three aspects of repentance. And the first is this. Repentance means a change of direction. So look at what the son says next. He says, I will arise and go to my father. That is a beautiful picture of repentance. Before this, the son was running away from the father, but now he's changing his direction and he's running back. So at its essence, repentance is a change of direction, a change of direction. Instead of running away from the father, we're running to the father. Instead of facing away from the father, we turn to face the father and we start moving back towards him. Now, here's what's really interesting. Nowhere in this passage does Jesus use the classic word for repentance, There's a word in both Hebrew and Greek, which are the original languages of the Bible. Each one of those languages has a word for repentance. And in each one of those languages, the word means to turn or to change direction. Jesus doesn't use the word in this passage. He does something even better. He gives us a picture of it. Because here's one of the most important things we can know about repentance. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter how badly you failed, no matter how often you failed, the only failure that can really keep you from God is a failure to turn back to him. I will arise and go to my father. One of the saddest and most terrible things that can happen to us is when we let the awfulness of our failure, when we let the frequency of our failure, when we let those things keep us from turning back to God. Because it's natural for us to look at our failures and to say, after what I've done, how can I go back? How can I turn to face my father? How can I go back to God? How could he possibly accept me after what I've done? Don't let that happen. Don't let the awfulness of your failure, don't let the frequency of your failure, don't let that keep you from turning back to God. The only failure that can keep you from God is a failure to turn back to him. Repentance is a change of direction. But secondly, it's ownership of the break. What do I mean by that? As we said, the son, he prepares this little speech. And so here's what he's going to say. He's going to go to his father and he's going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So notice that real repentance begins with God. The first thing he says is, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against God. Now, how has he done that? 
Well, remember what we just said. We have to build on what we learned last week. Sin is making something other than God your ultimate love. That means that sin is relational breakdown with God long before it ever turns into behavioral disobedience. Or one writer put it like this. He said that we're not just breaking God's rules. Sin is breaking God's heart. Therefore, repentance means dealing with the break. We have to see how we've hurt God. We have to see that we're alienated from him, that we're far away from him, and that we're the ones who are responsible for that. Um, as I've been studying this passage, one of the things that I've been struck by, I've thought, and actually several scholars point out the same thing, it's, it's very likely that in this parable, Jesus is pointing us back to the story of Genesis 3 and the story of the Garden of Eden. Uh, we actually were looking at this in, in the fall of last year, uh, we went through a whole series on this, so if you weren't here, you can listen to those sermons online. But in the Garden of Eden, the first man and woman rejected God. They wanted to be in control of their lives. They put themselves in the place of God, and the result was alienation. God sent them out of the garden. And, and if you remember the story, it says that he put a flaming sword guarding the entrance back into the Garden of Eden. That sword was there to say, you can't get back in unless you deal with the break. You, the, the relationship is broken, and the sword is a sign of the broken relationship. You have to deal with that. And you know exactly how this works. I mean, has, ever, has somebody ever really hurt you, um, but then they come back and they act like nothing ever happened? They're like, hey, oh, hey, why are you acting so funny? Why the kerfuffle? Aren't we good? And you want to say, what's wrong with you? Of course we're not good. Don't you remember what happened to me? Don't you remember what you did? We can't have a restored relationship unless we deal with what happened. There's a sword now. Something's broken the relationship, and we have to deal with that before the relationship can be restored. Restoring the relationship means dealing with the sword. Friends, repentance means recognizing that we have rejected God, that we're alienated from him, but we're the ones who are responsible for the sword. We're the ones who put it there. And that should produce a pain in your life. That should produce a grief in your life, but a very certain kind of pain and a very certain kind of grief. Here's what I mean by that. Most pain has a tendency to focus you in on yourself, right? So if you smash your finger with a hammer, your finger is going to be crying out with um, all of it. If, if your finger could talk, it would be saying, pay attention to me. All of your attention, all of your focus will be directed towards your finger. Most pain has a tendency to focus us more on ourselves. But the pain of repentance actually should lead you up out of yourself. So that if you hurt someone um, and it has painful consequences in your life, yes, you, you'll be sad about that. But if you're only sad about how it affects you, then you're not really sorry for what you did. You're sorry for yourself. And the pain of the consequences are, are making you more sad for yourself than it's making you sad for what you did. That's not repentance. That's remorse. You're, you're more sorry for yourself than you are for what happened. Repentance is when you're experiencing pain, not just for yourself, but what you've done, how you've hurt someone else. So you look at this son in this story. He's not just in pain over what happened to him, over his circumstances, He's in pain over what he did to the father. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's in pain, but not just for himself. He's in pain because of the pain that he's actually caused. So to give you an example, 
Um, Donald Miller wrote a book called Blue Light Jazz several years ago. It's about his experiences uh, as a young person coming to faith in Jesus. Um, at one point, he tells the story of how one Christmas he was given money to go buy Christmas gifts, and he spent most of the money on fishing equipment for himself. And he had just a little bit of money left over, and with that money, he bought his mom a cheap book that he knew she wasn't even going to be interested in. And then Christmas Eve, that night, you know, they were going to open their gifts the next day. He says that he couldn't go to sleep that night. Something was disturbing him so deeply. And here's how he puts it in the book. He says, in the moonlight, I drifted in and out of anxious sleep. And this is when it occurred to me that the gift I had purchased for my mother was bought with the petty change left after I had pleased myself. I realized I had set the happiness of my mother beyond my own material desires. I realized late that night that other people had feelings and fears and that my interactions with them actually meant something, that I could make them happy or sad in the way that I associated with them. Not only could I make them happy or sad, but I was responsible for the way I interacted with them. I suddenly felt responsible this was a different sort of guilt from anything I had ever previously experienced. It was a heavy guilt, so heavy that I fell out of bed onto my knees and begged God to stop the pain. I crawled out of my room and into the hallway by my mother's door and lay on my elbows and face for an hour or so, going sometimes into sleep before finally the burden lifted and I was able to return to my room. Was he in pain? Yeah, but it wasn't just pain for himself. It was a pain over what he did to his mother. He knew that he was responsible for that. And he was grieved, not for how it affected him, but for how it affected her. Repentance means dealing with the break. But there's one more thing before we move on. Okay, Repentance is a change of direction. It's dealing with the break. But lastly, it's ownership of the blame. The son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. So relational breakdown with God always leads to relational breakdown with other people. But when we've repented before God and we go to repent to the people around us, notice that this son is not shifting the blame for what happened. Now, this is a parable, and parables generally have a few big points, and we're not intended to press every single little detail of a parable and find out exactly what it means. That's not the point of parables. But if we were just going to use our imagination for a moment and... and, um, and play psychologist with this parable a little bit. It's not hard to imagine, you know, what if this father was kind of a dysfunctional father and it was kind of a dysfunctional family? I mean, what kind of father would he have had to be for his son to end up running away like this? Maybe the father spoiled the son. And the brother, look at the brother's a jerk. I mean, you see his speech later on in the parable. I mean, no wonder the son turned out the way he did, this younger son. You notice in this parable, there is no blame shifting here. The son says to the father, this is what I did. I'm responsible, no one else, period, full stop. I'm the one who's taking responsibility for this. Friends, repentance means a change of direction. It means dealing with the break. But lastly, it means taking the blame yourself, owning the blame. Now, that leads to our last point. We need to see one more thing. We've seen what repentance is not, and we've seen what it is. But lastly, we need to see what makes it truly possible. Because there's one more little part of the son's speech that we haven't looked at yet. The son says, or he's planning on saying, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's the problem, okay? What's the solution? What is the solution the son comes up with? 
He says, treat me as one of your hired servants. What does he mean by that? When he says, treat me as one of your hired servants, what's he doing? Um, a hired servant was different from other servants in that culture. That culture had different kinds of servants. So one level of servant was servants that lived on the estate. They worked there all the time. They never left the estate. They were a part of the family. But then there were other servants that were called hired servants. These were people that actually lived in town, and they would come onto the estate kind of like day laborers. They would do a job, get paid a wage, and, but then they would go back home at the end of the day. They earned a wage, and they were not a part of the family. That was a hired worker. It means when the son says, treat me like one of your hired workers, he's not coming back expecting to be readmitted um, back into the family. He's coming back expecting to earn his way back in. He's, he, he wants to come back and say, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but let me pay you back. Let me earn my way back in. Now, let's be really clear about something. If you hurt another person, another human being, you should do everything you can to restore what was lost, to make things right, to put things back in order. You should take responsibility and do everything you can to make restitution for what you did. That is the appropriate response to another human being. But when it comes to God, if you attempt to approach God that way, it'll actually make the problem worse. Why? Because if you do that, now you're approaching your relationship with God on the basis of your performance. That is a very religious way of relating to God, but it's not the gospel. Religion says, if I'm a good person, if I try really hard, if I do everything right, if I give it my best shot, then maybe then God will love me, accept me, and bless me. We're making our relationship with God on the basis of our performance, and we can do that with our repentance just as well. It's very natural for us to say, well, if I beat myself up enough, if I loathe myself and hate myself, if I grovel and crawl and beg my way back to God, maybe, just maybe, he'll take me back. Maybe, just maybe, he'll love me and accept me. You see, we turn our repentance into another performance, and then we make our relationship with God on the basis of, of that performance, that his love and acceptance come into our life, depending on how well we perform our repentance. So the religious approach, therefore, is a way of keeping control over your life. Because if you earn your way back into your relationship with God, then you're not a son or a daughter, you're a hard worker. And that means that you have rights. You can make demands, you can file a complaint when you feel you're not being treated fairly. You're not a son or a daughter, you're a hired worker. You keep control over your life. That approach to God, by the way, is hardwired into us. It is our default human nature to approach God like that. And maybe some of you are here this morning and maybe that approach is why you've rejected Christianity in the first place because you think it's just like every other religion. Listen, if you approach God like that, then your identity, your sense of personal security, your worth, your value, your dignity as a human being, all of that is going to be wrapped up in your performance. Not only will that make it impossible to repent to God, it will make it impossible to repent to other people. Because if your identity and your security is wrapped up in your performance, repentance is radically threatening to that. Because repentance basically is saying, I'm not a good person. I'm not the person I ought to be. I'm certainly not the person I want everybody to think I am. It's radically threatening. In other words, to truly repent, you need a security that's not based on your performance. 
Friends, the gospel says there's only one way back to God, and it's not your performance, it's grace. The gospel says either you come by grace or you can't come at all. And this parable gives us a wonderful picture of that grace in this homecoming scene when the son comes home. You see it in verse 20. It says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now imagine the scene. The father must have been sitting on his porch every single day, scanning the horizon constantly, waiting and watching and looking for his son. Now in that culture, in in Middle Eastern culture like that, um, the son had not just shamed the family, he had shamed the whole community because he had taken the family's inheritance and lost it among Gentiles. It was a tremendously shameful thing to do in that culture so that when this son came back, a, a mob probably would have formed around him. Um, kids probably would have gathered and started jeering and mocking and singing taunt songs. There may even have been physical violence involved. The only way for this son to get back home to his father would have been to run the gauntlet of this hostile mob. But the father sees him, and notice what the father does not do. The father does not say, Haha, there's that no good son of mine this is going to be good. I hope that that mob gives him what he deserves. I hope he suffers. Let him grovel. Let him crawl. And maybe, just maybe, I'll take him back. He does not say that. The father's sitting on the porch every single day, looking, scanning the horizon, waiting to see if the sun is going to come home. And as soon as he sees the sun far off on the outskirts of town, he is off that porch like lightning, running to meet the sun. Now, understand something. In Middle Eastern culture, it's still true today, actually, for a Middle Eastern man to run is extremely undignified. Even to walk fast is undignifying in that culture. In order to do that, the father would have had to pick up his robes, bare his legs, and then run through town across the crowd to get to the son. It would have been the most shameful and degrading thing he could possibly have done, but he did it for the son. Instead of making the son run the gauntlet, the father did it for him. He, he puts his arms around his child to protect him from the crowd. He kisses him in order to assure him of his love. He clothes his nakedness with a robe, his feet with sandals. The father showers his son with love. Before the, the son has a chance to say one word, this father is all over him. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that, that this would have encouraged the son? Do you think that this would have given him a sense of assurance, a sense of confidence? Do you think that this would have made him feel secure in the Father's love? You bet. Before he ever has an opportunity to say one word of repentance, the Father is all over him. That means that that his repentance is not a way of getting back into the Father's love. The love is what makes the repentance possible. Friends, this is what we need in order to truly repent. This is not a performance-based love. This is a grace-based love. You can't really repent unless you have a security that's not based on your performance. Religion says your performance is the basis of God's love for you, that your repentance secures God's love. The gospel is the exact opposite. It says that, that God's love secures your repentance. God's love empowers your repentance. God's love leads you to repentance. In fact, the apostle Paul literally says that in Romans chapter 2, verse 4 where he says that God's kindness leads us to repentance. 
It's not that our repentance leads to God's kindness. It's God's kindness, his love, his grace leads to our repentance. That's the gospel. Your security is not based on your performance, but on his. Because everything we see in this parable, everything we see this father doing is simply pointing us to the grace that we see on the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember the sword in the garden? The sword was there as a sign of the relationship that had been broken, but it was also a toll booth. The, sign, the, the sword was there as a sign of what it would cost. In order for the relationship to be restored, someone had to go under the sword. Friends, on the cross, Jesus went under the sword for you. Jesus ran the gauntlet so you wouldn't have to. Because on the cross, Jesus was jeered and mocked and taunted. He was stripped naked. His feet were nailed to a cross. And instead of of a kiss, he got a curse. Instead of seeing his father running toward him, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took the shame so that you wouldn't have to. He was robbed of his dignity so that yours could be restored. Jesus, his glory was laid in the dust so that a crown of glory could be laid on your head. There's the security that you need. There's your identity. There's how you know that you are special and unique and that you have worth and value and honor and dignity, that you were created for glory. Only the cross of Jesus Christ can give that to you. And when you have that, that's what you need in order to truly repent, to change direction, to face the Father and to go back to God maybe 50 times a week. Heck, maybe even 50 times a day. But you can do it because you know you have a father who's scanning the horizon. And as soon as he sees your face turning back to him, he says, there she is. There he is. And he's all over you with his love. The love makes the repentance possible so that now you're able to deal with the break. You're able to take ownership of the blame. And you can do it all because you see Jesus doing all of it for you. Let's pray.